0: Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Transforming Perceptions on Two X ninety eight point three FM Community Radio. Transforming Perceptions is brought to you by the ACT Transcultural Mental Health Network, with the support of the Mental Health Community Coalition ACT. Transforming Perceptions is a new show on Two X and has only been on air since the middle of September, 2010. The aim of transforming perceptions is to offer a range of different viewpoints on subjects or issues that may have direct or indirect links to social, emotional and mental well-being and to promote destigmatization of mental illness in the community. It is our aim to present these different perspectives in a non-judgmental manner, aiming to make links between self-care and mental well-being with a range of issues which may include but are not limited to, health, education, lifestyle choices or to activities such as gardening, yoga, meditation or spirituality. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of either the ACT Transcultural Mental Health Network or Two 2XX. We also aim to provide important information on where to get help in the ACT region, mental health sector updates, resources that are available or how to find out more about a specific topic that may be discussed. We welcome your support, feedback and ideas for topics you would like us to cover in subsequent shows. My name is Anya Tierney and I'm one of the presenters today. I'm co-presenting with Rod Taylor, who's from Fuzzy Logic.
1: And a pleasure to be here on Transforming Minds. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Rob. Uh, Rod, um, And also in the studio with me are Fiona Crockford, who is panel operating, and our guest, who is Associate Professor Dr Jeff Louis from the ANU Medical School of Psychiatry, welcome, Jeff.
1: Well, Jeffrey, how did you come to this field? I mean, you have quite a background in uh, what's the term, neuropharmacology? What, what would be the term first, and then how did you get into it?
2: I guess the, the way, the best way to describe it would be to say. There is neuropsychiatry and uh, I've been interested in it since I was uh, at school because obviously in our, in psychiatry it's about the rest of it's similar to the rest of the medical professions that you're working for the betterment of other people's health and for their care so it's an interest in people but also an interest in science uh, in brain science that's that's how I came into the, the field I always wanted to work in care of people with uh uh, mental illness and uh, particularly with elderly people who suffer from various health problems as they get older and i also had an equal interest in in research and brain science
1: is there a particular moment in your history or in your past that really sparked your interest This was a a relative or someone who you know you saw dementia in that uh uh, made you uh, attracted to this topic? Uh,
2: at, at this... Yeah, uh, when I was uh, uh, involved in, uh, in, in uh, being part of a larger family, I did see that people would suffer with various illnesses and uh, that, that prompted my interest. But also, coming uh, from a family background uh, uh, of uh, Chinese society, we place a lot of value on the roles of older people in the community and it seemed natural to me that I would be involved in the care of uh, the health for older people because uh, I could see uh, that it was a really important area and that people weren't, for some reasons, not uh, as keen to work in the area because of some of their concerns about ageing and some of the issues that with which they're dealing.
0: Uh, it could be very challenging to care for somebody who's got dementia or Alzheimer's. Yes when they start to lose those self-care that we we normally have going for ourselves and they need to be assisted on a daily basis or maybe even 24-hour basis.
1: Do do you see a lot of cultural differences in our approach to this sort of issue?
2: I think, Rod, the cultural interests and influences are very important because part of how uh, any health professional... Uh, doctors, nurses, or other allied health professionals work with uh, patients and their families, is through sharing uh, our understanding of the illness and the context, and that is very much influenced by cultural aspects, because different cultures may have quite different ways in which they explain uh, the what we call the illness, which is the uh, cultural and the personal experience of what arises from the changes in the body or the brain, which is the disease itself, the actual structural component, the expression is, det- is, is, is related to these cultural and uh, family and societal understandings.
1: Well, how much do you see it affecting the attitude of, of people towards the sorts of treatment that uh, different cultures are offering?
2: I think that it's an immense influence, and I think that, that one of the issues that we discussed before we had the session t- today uh, in relation to treatment adherence is actually uh, one of the it's one of the major factors because treatment adherence really should be about a treatment alliance between the health professional and and the, and the patient and their family uh, and as well as the community it should be
0: a holistic approach shouldn't yes it? yes oh we have the phone going off so Sorry about that. <laughs> um, I, I actually am the chair of the ACT Transcultural Mental Health Network and one of the things that we're trying to do is to inform mainstream health systems around the challenges that people and the barriers that people face when they come from a different cultural background. I think that's what, sort of where we're going with this, isn't it? Those The, the acculturation, the different interpretations... And sometimes very different understandings of a health or a mental health system, if people have immigrated from another country where there may not be a very good health system, do at times create those barriers for people to seek or um, get help from a mental health or a health professional. Yes, absolutely.
2: I think that there are very important cultural and historical aspects that one must be aware of in caring for people from diverse backgrounds. When I was working at St George Hospital in Sydney, I had the privilege of looking after some people who'd emigrated from uh, the Ukraine. And one of the difficulties is that under the former Soviet system before the uh, uh, establishment of Perestroika and, and Glasnost and the break-up of the communist state, was that the psychiatry profession in Russia at that time was very much under... Uh, and uh, influenced by the communist party and that that was used as an agency of social control so that there was uh, there was concern when you had interaction with services because that was that was what people had experience of this is in no way similar to australia mm. if for example you look at the mental health act in canberra we have a whole page of exclusion criteria for what may be considered a mental illness and very specifically it says poli- persons political beliefs are excluded in, in in the actual guidelines for uh the legislation that pertain to voluntary and involuntary treatment mm.
1: yes it, it, it's quite a complicated area isn't it because older listeners will remember the movie that classic of uh Jack Nicholson, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and the book that went with it, on which it was based, and in that it's a very dysfunctional institution, the medical hospital, and the people's experience of it is, uh, well, not good.
0: It's not empowering.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But so, yeah, and you you, you mentioned that the pre glasnost era in the Soviet Union, uh, that has changed people's whole perception of... um, of, of psychiatry and, and mental health so um...
0: in, in Ireland at the moment uh, the mental health system is working towards deinstitutionalisation where we deinstitutionalised mental health back in the 60s and 70s in Ireland they're still doing that and we're in the 21st century so some countries haven't got um, haven't moved past institutionalisation. Some countries, they don't even have a a mental health system at all.
1: So what what sort of developments do you see in this, Geoffrey? Are you seeing changes to the way we approach mental health in Australia?
2: I think there have been a great deal of changes, uh, Rod, in in mental health in relation to Australia. I think some of the important things that people have done have been to try and help uh, publicise the fact that people... Suffer from a variety of mental health symptoms, and that they are part of hum- the general human experience and, 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 and part of health problems that are important for the community. And this has been through uh, some of these programs, uh, such as Beyond Blue, that have helped to raise awareness. And I think the next stage after raising awareness about these issues is also to work in a, a more holistic manner in some ways. In relation to these issues, because they are also themselves complex, that depression is perhaps not all of one type, and that people suffer depression under different circumstances. And it's the it's the metaphor uh, and the the way in which we communicate about depression that needs more uh, nuance about it and ways of communication as we now have come through stages of stigmatization. And-
0: Yes, sorry,
1: on. Uh, is, is an example of that sort of thing the, the mind versus brain the drugs versus therapy approach? Is that the sort of thing you're talking about?
2: Yes, uh, I think that these uh, dichotomies are particularly prevalent because of the way in which we function in an environment where the media has much greater influence with internet and uh, television and telecommunications and also, partly because it's human nature, it's easier to understand things if there is a dichotomy. But in reality, uh, the, most, the most sophisticated understanding is that it's the brain, mind and body as one, that you understand it as an embodied concept. And uh, this has a tradition that goes back to aspects of philosophy in merleau ponty uh, the phenomenological perspective. So I think that this is also an important part that we somehow lose some aspects of our richness of humanity if we say that you are a mind alone or brain alone or body alone, that we're whole people. And uh, when you're caring for someone as a health professional, you deal with the whole person and and the family.
1: Oh, and, and, and the metaphor that comes to my mind is that thing that we screw into the ceiling is it a light bulb or is it light yeah i mean you've got the, the physical thing which is the bulb and then you've got the light that comes off it mm-hmm.
0: terms like mental illness seem to separate illness into different categories you've got physical illness and mental illness so it's it's almost as if our brain is is like davros or something it's in some machine (laughs) separated from our physical bodies but the two are actually connected and and something can happen to us physically we can have a physical illness we can become unwell in our bodies but that can also affect our minds can't it absolutely
2: i think that the the issue has been that there has been a philosophical tradition which is people are aware of in the cognitive sciences and also in philosophy which relates to what is known as Cartesian dualism arising from Descartes I think therefore I am so that your existence arises from your thought processes alone but people aren't their thought processes alone they experience emotions they experience pain and they're not just conscious thought processes. They're part of uh, the joys of life and, and, and the struggles of life. So that in a nuanced understanding or more complex understanding of, of these issues, uh, you, you take the whole brain, mind and body into account and also people's context.
1: Mm. Um, so what are the major... Let's go into the brain part of this now, the physical, chemical part of the story... Uh, what are the major categories of uh, psychiatric drugs? Pardon me if I've got the right... Would you say psychiatric drugs, psychology drugs, neuro... Drugs? Give me the right term. Psycho- <laughs> when we
2: usually talk about psychotropic drugs, and it arises from the, the effect that the, it has... It arises from the Greek origins of these words, which is trophic, means have growth or change effects. Trophos, uh, which is from Greek. And uh, psyche, which is actually the soul in Greek, uh, in ancient Greek, particularly. So they're psychotropic agents. So the specific psychotropic agents are those agents that we generally use for treatment of what are termed psychiatric uh, disorders, but may actually cross a range of different types of diseases, such as dementia, various types of dementia, people with. Uh, Epilepsy, who suffer from emotional or cognitive symptoms, people with multiple sclerosis, who suffer from uh, emotional or cognitive symptoms, and really, these psychotropic agents have uses and they must be used very judiciously in this regard to try and help alleviate the suffering of people as part of the picture of working with the person to our understanding of their symptoms and supporting them both psychologically but also with giving them information about the illness so that they can manage the illness uh, in a collaborative way. But understanding that there is a responsibility on the health practitioner to try and help navigate the minefield of various options because it can be a minefield because there is quite a lot of misinformation that can occur as a result of particular vested interests or difficulties, particularly on uh, Uh, an entirely democratic but possibly entirely chaotic environment as the internet
1: Yes, a great place for spreading information and misinformation Um, Look, This morning I have to confess I self-medicated, I had a cup of tea with breakfast What sort of thing (laughs) would be going on inside my brain as a result of me ingesting some caffeine?
2: Yes, well that's one thing that people often don't think about is that most people ingest psychotropic agents every day such as coffee, tea, beer, wine these are all agents that have effects on your brain function and your body and caffeine is a uh, methylxanthine and it's a compound that enhances performance and it actually helps with cognitive performance but there's usually a trade-off after a while when the caffeine wears off you feel more tired afterwards. Tea generally contains a lot less caffeine than. Uh, coffee, and I'm not an expert on caffeine content of, of uh, normal uh, coffee and, and tea. But m- my understanding from uh, chemistry and, uh, and, and physiology is that the tea generally releases a lot less caffeine. And the changes that occur in the brain are complex, but they do seem to help uh, enhance alertness. And that's why sometimes caffeine is used in. Uh, some of the agents that are used to treat migraine, it's put in together because some of the agents to treat migraine sometimes cause drowsiness. And Ill, caffeine is also... As to the specific mechanism of the, of the caffeine, I'm not an expert on that.
1: Mm. Oh, but you are expert on uh, drugs to do with dementia. Yes. yes. Um, so what, what are some of those?
2: There are a number of treatments that are now available to slow down the progression Of uh,
0: the dementias and the technical term that we use What what is dementia? Some people might not know exactly what dementia is
2: So dementia is an overall category or classification of a type of disease that is thought to arise in the brain where you have progressive loss of brain cells that leads unfortunately to loss of brain functions that will cross the variety of cognitive emotional and Uh, other components of uh, including often motor and other features of uh,
0: brain and bodily function so people lose the capacity to speak or to walk or to feed themselves yes that's right and there are a
2: number of what are regarded as uh, the at the more complex level neurochemical and uh, biological changes that occur but there is by no means a precise relationship between the neurobiological and uh, chemical changes that happen at the cellular level and the presentation uh, at a uh, clin- clinical level or the, pe- the experience of the person, except for very specialised sorts of circumstances.
0: Yeah. We might actually go to a, a track, um, something from Michelangelo and the Black Sea Gentlemen, uh, from their... Album Dead Men Tell a Thousand Tales. It's called The Struggle to Be Human Welcome back. You're listening to Transforming Perceptions on 2X 98.3 FM, and we're talking to um Sorry, Associate Professor Jeff Louie from the ANU Medical School of Psychiatry. And we were chatting before we went to the break about dementia and, and medications that work for the brain. So maybe we might expand a little bit on that.
1: Yeah, just, um, Jeff, you were talking about how the drugs work and what are they doing? Are they exciting or dampening parts of the brain? Is that
2: correct? Oh, yes. Uh, for the... If we start as a base from the, the dementia treatments, uh, the agents are known as what we call allostatic, so they try to maintain stability because there are as yet no cures for, for most of the types of dementia, and the treatments are in the main directed towards Alzheimer's disease, which is a particular subtype of dementia, but the most common type, about 60% of people who suffer from dementia over the age of 65 will have Alzheimer's disease. And these medicines act, in this case, uh, to stabilise the levels of chemicals such as acetylcholine, which is a brain chemical that helps with signalling of nerves, particularly in relation to the memory circuits, which are affected most uh, in the beginnings of Alzheimer's disease. So it aims to enhance the remaining function of the neurons, that exists there in a way that's quite analogous to the use of dopamine agents for Parkinson's disease, where people have a dysfunction where they lose cells that produce dopamine in the base of the brain.
0: What does dopamine actually do for the brain?
2: Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that is used in a number of signaling pathways in the brain, and the signaling pathways relate to all the areas that can be affected by illnesses such as Parkinson's disease or in uh, by agents that sometimes have to be used to treat other symptoms of psychiatric illnesses such as the antipsychotic medications. So dopamine has links and circuits that go to the emotional components of the brain the limbic circuit they also go to the frontal cortex where planning and organization of the brain occurs they also link to the reward centers of the brain where people uh, gain rewards from the activities they do uh, the pleasure circuitry but also uh, for the the feelings of mastery and, and, and success that people gain in learning Uh, physical activities and learning how to play sport or complex activities. It also acts acts as a gating mechanism to help with decision making in some of the circuits that uh, relate to, particularly to the areas that we study in our research, the the striatum, which is the part of what I call the basal ganglia and they help uh, organise a whole lot of different brain functions and control the modulation of them. One of the ways you could look at it is, is that some tu- some aspects of dopamine function and the interfaces with that are like the gain controls that you have on the panel uh, here in the in the studio to help to modulate aspects and all the neurotransmitters work that way it 's never a one to one relationship with the functions or, or the illness is that there 's an interaction with other uh, brain uh, neurotransmitters and the circuits because really. The neurotransmitters are only so useful as the circuits, and the the illness with the disease in, in, uh, in dementia causes loss of the actual structure of the circuits. So the actual uh, infrastructure or the actual bricks and mortar of the brain is 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 coming coming down, and that interferes with the ability of the brain to function properly, and that's why it's very hard to to develop specific treatments for the uh, treatment of the neuro- the loss of the neurons or the brain cells because many different things can cause the effectively the bricks and mortar of the brain to to come down so that there's as many avenues as there are scientists to investigate mm.
1: Uh, you use the word avenues. Now, I think of the brain as this vast metropolis with buzzing traffic buses and cars and trucks zooming across the city around these great highways and intersections and things. And that comes to mind, pardon the pun, because I think of the brain as being a transmitting device. We tend to think of the neurons, but am I right to say that it's the communication of parts of the brain that is really central to the way... It works for these drugs. Are they slowing or accelerating traffic down those
2: various highways? Is that kind of a a good metaphor for what it's doing? I think, Rod, it is is a a quite good metaphor because the brain, the way that we understand it function and how how it manifests itself in in the mind and in, in a person is that it is a complex interactive structure, that there are array of... Of networks and, and circuits, which individually don 't constitute that much, but together in the, in the entirety and then in the interaction with other people uh, constitute the person in, together with the body, so that there are studies that show that there are more complex uh, wider wider spread networks that exist in, on the right side of the brain that allow us to deal with novelty. There is a duplication, but there is also hemispheric specialisation. And it's a bit more complicated than the old left-right brain dichotomy, but that in general the right side of the brain has larger, more widespread networks that allow for more efficient processing of novel information, and that the left side of the brain, uh, regardless of people's uh, handedness, uh, has more uh, smaller circuits which can store... Uh, more consolidated networks of uh, information and interaction and behaviour, mm-hmm. and there's a, a vast uh, array of fibres uh, that connects the two, called the corpus callosum, which is a large white matter tract that allows the two hemispheres to interact, and uh, is is a very very much a focus of investigation. Uh, one of my Uh, colleagues, uh, Mark Walterfang in Melbourne investigates uh, changes in schizophrenia with corpus callosum Mm.
1: Ah, that's an interesting uh, one we should come back to I I
0: wanted to ask a question of of you um, which you sort of briefly touched on but and we were talking about earlier was these illnesses we're talking about, mental illness and um, Parkinson's and dementia and Alzheimer's How do people develop them? Is there a genetic component to that or is it reliant on uh, external forces or some different cultural groups may have different perceptions about these illnesses and how they actually develop how people get them?
2: I think that, in fact, uh, it's a combination of all the factors that you you mention that there are... At one end of the continuum with the diseases that people suffer from in relation to the brain and the body, very genetically determined disorders, and they generally manifest in early to midlife. And these are disorders uh, for adults such as Huntington's disease. So they are very genetically determined. Uh, But the individual expression of disorders is often influenced by environment, diet, People's lifestyle habits, their social connections and supports.
0: So just because someone's got a genetic predisposition, they don't necessarily that doesn't necessarily mean that they will develop an illness.
2: It depends on the nature of the genetic association. There are undoubtedly particular disorders which are very genetically determined in terms of their uh, nature. And perhaps it's a bit complicated to go into the specifics of that, and I'm not a geneticist, uh, and it's a very complex area. But at one end of the continuum, there are disorders that cause very significant structural and functional changes in brain and body, and then they will manifest themselves pretty much of a course, unfortunately, as a result of those very severe disturbances, some of them are not compatible with living. So people, so sometimes that will happen. That people, that's what happens with spontaneous uh, loss of ch- children in, in in pregnancy, and that can happen that because that the body, it's no longer compatible with with survival. So there's a, a that, that, that 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 there's a spontaneous abortion that occurs at that time, and that's one of the theories about gene- some of the genetic disorders the at the other end of the 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 spectrum is are, are disorders which you might have a predisposition and the probably the best examples are things that are fairly common in the community such as high blood pressure and high cholesterol and they in fact may be a result of gen, of genetic but also evolutionary factors if you have better uh levels of of uh, cholesterol that might be useful for you when you're younger, and you might have a better circulation, which means your blood pressure is, 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 is good when you're young. When you reach middle age and later age, these genes may not, no longer be useful for you when you're older. But in, in genetic and evolutionary terms, as a survival of the species, that, that isn't so much a factor in, in how genes uh, are propagated. So they, 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 there's often the expense of earlier survival versus later because of the issues of reproductive period. And this is, this is the, that complex interplay. I'm not saying, and it should not be equated in any way with the social value of people. I'm just talking about the evolution and the, and the history because there's a lot of very interesting biological anthropology and biological psychology and, 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 and neuroscience that shows that these things... In fact, a lot of these factors are very much conserved across species, that they're things that help enhance your fitness and survival that may not be good for you in the long run. Mm.
0: But we, we didn't used to live as long as we, we are living Absolutely, And that's,
2: that's, that's really a miracle in many ways, how well people, uh, the survival with modern technology and with, particularly with sanitation and hygiene and the way that we can produce food, all these changes have meant an astronomical increase in the rate of people's lifespans. Mm. Uh, if you look, all of us in some ways, and it may be a bit simplistic to think about it, are the, are the, are the, are the uh, our ancestors are probably the most long-lived uh, and we're the, we're, we're the longer-living of the most long-lived because most of the people in all of recorded history would have passed away at a very young age until uh, very, uh, uh, not recorded history, I mean uh, uh, sort of uh, in terms of the the whole human existence uh, because millions of years people would have only passed away about 25 or 30.
1: Yeah, and, and your uh, point about um, being healthy during the reproductive years is a really an interesting one because I will remember my wife being very heavily pregnant with our first child and she got a nasty flu And I said to the doctor, is this going to be an issue for the baby? And he said, oh, no, the baby's fine. Everything in the mother is going to make sure the baby is happy. Uh, But also what you're saying about um, age and parts of us wearing out. So if you had a really old banger of a car that you're about to take it to the tip, you you wouldn't go putting a new (laughs) spray of paint on it, would you? Because... You want all the bits
2: to, work, to wear out at about the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that the sort of thing you're, you're thinking of? Well, the thing is that, unfortunately, we're not designed like cars, or maybe fortunately we're not designed like cars, if we can think of some of our first cars. <laughs> not uh, my car, the yeah. case, uh, uh, uh We're not designed actively. That, that's evolution and that it is, in fact, some of it is trial and error and some things are discovered to be through the process of evolution. Uh, that that, that things will work out and some things they don't work out when you're older
0: yeah um, just focusing a little bit on um, mental health and medication for mental illnesses um, I have an article that was written Mm -hmm. by, uh, that was in the Diversity Health Institute's um, e-bulletin and it talks about that research has often shown that people from different Cultural backgrounds have consistently lower levels of medication adherence than that occurring in the general population. And um, in Australian society, approximately one in four individuals are born overseas. Medication adherence continues to be an enormous problem. So I just want to ask you about those two issues about um, the sorts of medications that people have to take who have mental illness and why people aren't taking the medication.
2: Okay, so in broad categories, uh, the psychotropic medicines that I mentioned before, uh, there are, apart from the treatments for dementia, which are sort of classed together as anti-dementia treatments, which is not such a great term in itself, but uh, the the other agents that are used to treat mental illness include antidepressants for treatment of depression, but also for treatment of anxiety disorders in many cases, and sometimes treatment of other Sorts of uh, problems that people experience, including uh, things that occur in dementia, such as loss of control of emotions and impulsivity. Then there are also antipsychotic agents, which are used in the main for treatment of psychotic illness, which is a very broad category of illness that runs from disorders that are clearly uh, apparent across the entire human population, such as schizophrenia, which is a very severe form of psychosis, and even a sub- probably a subset of those people have a very severe schizophrenia, which may be m- much more genetically and, and biologically determined uh, uh, as well. Uh, another colleague, Dr. Dennis Felakoulis in Melbourne, is investigating a type of uh, Dementia that may be related to very severe forms of schizophrenia, oh. and uh, published some very interesting research um, in the British Journal of Psychiatry, and uh, we're working with him looking at some of these uh, factors in in uh, in, uh, in relation to dementia. But coming back to the uh, psychotropic medicines, uh, there are specific anti-anxiety agents which, in the main, from a practical psychiatric viewpoint, should really overlap with the antidepressant medicines. And there is a class that we use much less than we did before, which relate to these older anxiolytics, such as the benzodiazepine agents. And generally, they can be used extremely short-term for relief of symptoms, and sometimes they're used in surgical procedures to help with people's sedation. But in the longer term, they're problematic, and the consensus is that people don't usually recommend the use of those agents long term and the preference is to have a, a longer acting agent which may not be quite as effective immediately but is not addictive because benzodiazepines can be addictive and the old barbiturates that people used to use were wow. also addictive and i think that the important thing to understand with uh, psychotropic medications is that the changes with those things apart from lithium which was discovered by an australian psychiatrist john cade uh, in which the is 1950s, for bipolar yeah, for treatment of bipolar disorder Uh, And I'll talk a bit about mood stabilizers as well. Most of them were developed after the 1950s, which isn't a very long time ago. And most of the changes that have occurred with pharmaceutical uh, treatments have actually occurred after that time. And we're still developing our brain science and understanding to improve those sorts of treatments. The mood stabilizers are generally used for more severe forms of mood disorders, such as bipolar disorder and now an increasing variety of different disorders which have overlaps between depression, uh, which is the severe low mood, as distinct from sort of individual feelings of low mood that you might have from time to time which are passing, and mania, which is an excessive zeal or excitement quite out of the ordinary and persisting to a degree that causes harm for people, And therein lies some of those difficulties when you define the disorders, is that what is excessive for one person may not be excessive for another, but to try and help people, you still have to work with them to find out those sorts of things and to find a middle ground to help treat people. So the mood stabilizers include things such as lithium and some anticonvulsant medicines that are used for treatment of epilepsy and increasingly some specific agents that help to dampen down particular aspects of neurotransmitter function because some aspects of bipolar disorder are thought to some relate to some over excitation of the uh, the brain's uh, circuitry uh,
0: so some people have some of these medications have side effects don't they
2: yes absolutely that uh The most common question, I think, Rod was asking me, what happens day to day is what are the side effects of the medication? And and the public, I think, is quite aware that medications have side effects. And it comes back to the old nostrum that we were taught in medicine, primum non nocere, which is first do no harm. And some of the best ways that you can first do no harm is think before you prescribe anything in terms of medication because you can always... Uh, look at other options and that part of that holistic picture. But the common side effects of medications relate to the different classes and uh, they can run the range of things. I could describe them in general terms because the specifics would take a very long time. Mm. Obviously, because they are psychotropic medicines and affect people's cognition and emotions and are aimed to try and help alleviate people's symptoms, well, as a result of that, they can cause other side effects that relate to people's cognition and emotion. Sometimes people might initially, as their body and brain gets used to it, feel more anxious when they first started on the medicine, or feel a little bit dizzy or or unsettled, because they are tr- the medicines are there to try and help adjust brain chemistry at some level, and so there may be side effects from that. And because, as we were talking about with dopamine, and to a lesser extent with cetylcholine, these neurotransmitters serve other functions in the brain, there may be unwanted side effects that result from, example, if you use antipsychotics to block dopamine levels in certain areas of the brain that reduce the propensity to experience psychosis, that you might have motor effects, that you might have stiffness, because in effect it interferes with that part of the neurotransmission that we want to keep going, but it's very hard to design a medicine that is effective for that increasingly they're trying to work on medicines that are more targeted.
0: Mm. Yes, So, but there are alternatives to medication. Medication is important, but there are alternatives, aren't there, to medication?
2: That's right. And I, I think that it comes back to that, to thinking about the person holistically and seeing whether a medication is required in the circumstance by talking through with the person. And often... And perhaps we don't do it as much as we, we should. Uh, I think we can always do this a bit better, is to have uh, contact when people want, particularly with family members and, and carers. And and I think I find this particularly good that we can do this with more freedom in some ways I- I- increasingly, uh, that uh, uh, the government seems it to, uh, seen fit to support this in provision of uh, Medicare items that support collaboration with families, and also we do this in the health service and in the private sector, Mm. uh, so that you get a context for what's going on, because, for example, there are milder and more transient types of depression for which a medication is not necessarily required, Uh, that it may be that through a combination of Making some changes to lifestyle, such as undertaking regular exercise, taking some psychological therapy, uh, or taking up relaxation uh, or yoga or Tai Chi. Uh, it depends very much on the person because some people will say, No, absolutely, I, do, I, I don't like that sort of thing, I won't do it. And other people will be at the other th- end of things and they'll say, I'll say to them, perhaps you have a mild depression, you could try and do these lifestyle factors, and then you have the other side of the coin that says, no, no, that's too hard, just give me a tablet. And and it it, it depends on the person. It's always a discussion. And I I don't take that at face value when they say, just give me a tablet, i want to try and explain to them. Mm. And in the end, they can work together with you, or they might choose to go to a practitioner who just gives them Mm. a tablet. But I think any good health professional... uh, tries to consider the whole picture and that's what we try to do as psychiatrists particularly is to take into account the medical conditions that people might suffer their social circumstances their psychology the way their personality is because you can't use the same treatment for everyone
0: Mm. um we're we're going to run out of time soon but i did want to sort of talk about some people actually self-medicate don't they with alcohol and drugs which they're bought street drugs or sometimes they self-medicate by taking too much of a particular um, prescribed medication, yes. and this can have problems. Do you want to speak a little bit about that?
2: Yes. Yes. I think that it is a it is a complex issue. If I if I might go with your question from from the back first, I think with the self-medication with your own medications that might have been prescribed or things or medicines that are available over the over the counter. I think unless that's done very carefully. And it's hard because you, you may not have the background in it. And even if you do, you shouldn't probably be doing it yourself anyway. Um, that includes health professionals. Uh, it, it's risky because you, the reason of working, for working with someone like a psychiatrist uh, or your GP is to, uh, is to get a perspective on the situation and talk over things and bounce the ideas off as to whether the medicine is appropriate and whether it's causing more problems than it's worth. So that sort of self medication I don't endorse and particularly taking medicines that uh, that people buy things over the internet sometimes and they purchase stuff that uh, you don't know about the quality of these 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 medicines and medicines have to be used very carefully uh, and judiciously. That's particularly in the case of working with older people because the interactions with medicines can cause a lot of problems. Coming to the addictions and alcohol, uh, tobacco, in uh, some cases caffeine, uh, it is much more complex that often in those circumstances that medicines can be used to help treat those disorders, but also the disorders reinforce themselves because they create a lifestyle around themselves. And this includes things like marijuana use, where people develop a lifestyle where they spend most of their time doing those things, and that reinforces it in itself and makes it very hard for people, to, for them to change. But that also makes it difficult in some ways because to effect such changes with addictions, people have to act on themselves, and that healthcare professionals, carers, family members, will really struggle because the most important determinant is the person themselves engaging. And there is a problem because beyond a certain point especially if people take drugs of certain types which cause quite direct brain damage they'll in some ways lose the ability to help rein themselves back in and that's a very difficult situation.
0: Some of those medications or drugs that you're talking about actually alter your own perception of reality don't they? They do. So your perception of reality then might become quite skewed if you're smoking too much marijuana or drinking too much alcohol and you're responding to life and other people's um, caring for you. Perhaps sometimes people are thinking negatively about the caring that's being offered or the advice of a medical professional. I think you're, you're
2: quite correct that it's in fact some sort of fog across the experience of life. And because that's what they see, then it's hard to work with people and discuss things with them because it comes back to what we were talking about before. It's the difference in the illness model.
1: Mm.
2: I'm so depressed, and then why can't you help me? And when we discuss things with people and we talk with their family and the people who care for them and we advise cutting back on the alcohol, they they say, well, that's not the problem at all. So when we have a big difference of what is vi- being viewed as the illness. And then un- unless we can bridge that gap or the person has some moment of insight that that 's a problem it, it will be tragic and it's very it is very hard and that 's why I really respect uh, our colleagues who who work in at the uh, in addiction medicine, uh, such as my colleagues at the uh, Canberra hospital uh, who work tirelessly with with their counselors and the nurses to try and support people who are in very dire circumstances because of alcohol or other drug addictions.
0: Mm. Um, just one last question. I I know that some people, because of their language um, issues, perhaps they don't have very good uh, English language skills, um, when they go to see a doctor or they might have a cultural um uh, Discomfort with speaking to the doctor about their health or the medication that they're on, they don't ask the right kind of questions. What sort of questions should people be asking when they see the GP or a clinician?
2: I think the key things are to ask about what, what they get and a good explanation of what, is, what the clinician considers to be the problem and to have a shared understanding that you bounce that backwards and forwards are we talking about the same things that you regard as symptoms? Because there may be a difference between that and that will really influence treatment. Then in the treatment options, I'm quite happy in my practice and I think this is the issue issue to discuss the options in treatment and all the possibilities and sometimes people haven't thought about the different things that might be undertaken. And also the third aspect probably is to discuss with the, the clinician about teamwork because... The things, and I guess this is affected by my work as a specialist, is that we have to work in teams, and I really do work in a team with, especially in the hospital and, and also in, in private practice with the GP and often a psychologist as well, that we share support of people and we work with the carers as well to provide a system of care that we keep that dialogue open. That So another thing is to ask how people work, the model in which they work, are you happy for me to come in and and talk? Uh, Because I think one of the things in the past has been an over-concern about aspects of legality and and aspects of political correctness for good reasons, in some ways of autonomy, but at the expense of understanding someone's context, their family members, uh, that there's an overly bureaucratic response to inclusion of families. And I think that is probably something that continues to concern families uh, and and carers and partners Uh, if someone is living with someone with illness if they want to be involved and and uh, I think that that's really important.
0: Well the people themselves who are caring for the person need support as well and they need the information so they can do the best job uh, of caring and being there for that family member who is a loved person. Yes I think they deserve their own support in their own right it's not
2: just the clinician that the, that that's what we do with the dementia care as well we ask people to get in contact with good supports like the alzheimer's association or carers act to get support for themselves to assist them to care for yeah. their, their their loved ones
0: i think we're really very close to time now so um Thank you so very much for coming today and discussing these issues. It's been really very educational for me. Um, and, Rod, do you have any last questions that you want to ask Dr. Louis? Oh,
1: Well, just a brief one, I know, although it could take a long while with some one, but you cut it short, what are the prospects for a really good improvement in uh, dementia care, do you think?
2: I think there's lots of good improvements that are being... Uh, worked on at the nursing end in, in aged care facilities. But I think if I could put a plug in for, for social advocacy, I think it would be really good that, that we support some things on the political side, that we support better provision of aged care and, and aged care facilities for people and the provision of in-home care and more foresight and planning. For medical and, and and nursing services
1: well a, a, as a person who's uh, aging uh, the only person in the room is actually getting older and uh, <laughs> at, at a time in our society when uh, the profile of the population is is aging uh, considerably I can't think of a you know one a more important field of medicine or well, a few this is a, a really valuable thing to society so uh, thank you very much uh, Jeffrey and congratulations on the fabulous work that you do and Thank you from me.
0: Yeah, thank you too, Rod. Thanks, Fiona. Um, if anybody wants any information on this show, they can contact me on 0403 497 959. <laughs>